As technology unravels the mysteries of the human mind, deeper, more intimate knowledge is now in the hands of health providers and businesses. So, will this technology be used for us or against us? Hello and welcome to our brand new podcast series, Transforming Business with Minta Ellison, Ideas and Challenges that are Shaping Our Future. In this episode, we'll be investigating the extraordinary leaps being made in medical technology and the huge impact that that's going to have on the future of business and the health sector. Emerging technologies are changing the way that health providers treat patients and the way that businesses interact with customers, employees and other stakeholders. In theory, this should change society for the better. But will it? To help us answer that question, we'll be speaking with Professor Nita Farahani, a leading American scholar on the ethical, legal and social implications of emerging technologies. Afterwards, we'll also hear from our own Minter Ellison partner, Jonathan Kelp, about the implications for health professionals and patients. According to Professor Farahani, technology can decode brain activity to reveal what people are really thinking and feeling, and it's already being used by businesses. We caught up with her while she was in Australia for AMP's Amplify Festival to discuss the possibilities and inherent risks of this technology. Minta Ellison was a proud sponsor of the Amplify Festival this year. To begin with, I asked the professor to tell us how technology is able to decode brain activity. So there's a lot of different technology that is starting to be able to decode the brain. There's much more sophisticated technology that's unlikely to go mainstream, but it's where we've learned a lot of decoding. Um, That's more sophisticated technology is called functional magnetic resonance imaging, which is... um, like a traditional MRI, except it measures the functionality of the brain by looking at how blood flows into and out of different regions of the brain. It turns out that as blood is flowing into and out of different regions of the brain, that happens in characteristic patterns, that using pattern recognition technology from things like artificial intelligence and machine learning and computer science, we can start to decode what that means. And so just to give you an example, if I were to show somebody a bunch of different video clips downloaded from somewhere like YouTube and record their brain activity uh, using a functional magnetic resonance imaging machine or fMRI, and then create a pattern recognition algorithm that fed that algorithm both the brain activity together with the videos, Um, eventually I could then show a person new video clips, give the pattern recognition algorithm just the brain activity, and it could reconstruct the images that the person is seeing by looking at a region called the visual cortex of the brain. And just like you could look at the visual cortex of the brain, you can look at parts of the brain that are responsible for hearing or listening, like the auditory cortex, or you could look across the brain to start to decode more complex thought, images that a person is seeing, um, emotions that they might be experiencing. And if we look to the more mainstream 
rather than measuring blood flow into and out of different regions of the brain, we can measure the electrical activity of the brain. And the electrical activity of the brain happens because um, as we think, as we experience life, um, we have what are called neurons in our brain and neurons fire in our brain. That's how uh, our brain cells communicate with one another. And as they fire, they give off tiny electrical discharges. And as you have a dominant thought or dominant experience like relaxation or anxiety or you do a math calculation, these are also characteristic patterns of firing of neurons with tiny electrical discharges that can be using uh, computer algorithms reconstructed to start to say this is what the person is thinking or experiencing or feeling at any given time. That's pretty extraordinary stuff. So if, if I think about that from a business point of view, how might that be how might that be harnessed for good? There are a lot of ways it can be harnessed for good. The simplest is to think about the number one leading cause of accidents, which is drowsiness while driving. So it's not just inebriation or people who have too much alcohol. It's also people who are tired behind the wheel. And if we think of long-distance drivers like truck drivers or people who are um, piloting airplanes or who are conducting trains, drowsiness while driving in those contexts can be particularly dangerous and put a lot of people at risk. So what if we could measure by directly monitoring the brain using something like EEG or this electroencephalography technology, drowsiness before it occurs or as it's starting to occur. And we could alert the truck driver or alert the pilot or alert the conductor that they are starting to become drowsy and that they need to you know, have a cup of coffee or pull over or do something to um, alert them to the situation that can really avert a huge number of accidents. Um, We can also measure people's alertness in the workplace. Um, Coal miners, for example, uh, if they're becoming drowsy because of exposure to something like carbon monoxide, being able to give them real-time information of what's happening in their brain can be quite powerful and um, enhance their safety, enhance their well-being. So there are ways in which this can be put to good in the workplace and already are being put to good in the workplace a lot of ways in which we can increase productivity, attention, decrease drowsiness, uh, and overall help people understand their own cognitive states in the workplace. Interesting. Does the existence of this technology then potentially leave open the question of liability, perhaps, from an employer's point of view? So if this technology exists from a, a health and safety point of view, for example, Is it then incumbent upon employers in certain industries and sectors to harness this technology and uh, implement it in order to protect their employees? Do you think there could be a a question of, of negligence if they don't? It's an interesting question. I think it depends on what the norms are that we set. So if we decide that this technology is essential to the well-being of an employee, it may be that it's necessary to offer them the opportunity to wear it. Um, But this is where you come up with the delicate line between uh, what is it that you can offer to employees versus what is it that you can require of employees. Um, It may be the case that uh, if there is modern technology that can vastly improve the safety of employees, that that technology needs to be offered. Um, But it's also possible that employees won't want to adopt that kind of technology, depending on how they feel about the intrusiveness or whether or not they feel like it may undermine their autonomy in the workplace as well. 
Interesting. Now, I'm just thinking about the health sector in particular uh, and some of the technology you've just talked about. Uh, what do you think are some of the, the practical applications uh, from the health sector's point of view? There are a lot. I mean, from the basic of, you know, if you think about the long hours that surgeons work, for example, um, and we know that uh, the longer you go without sleep or without rest, um, the decreased motor coordination that you have as a surgeon, being able to monitor their performance over time and being able to give them feedback about a decline in their overall um, you know, cognitive state of being can really help to mitigate the cost of accidents in that kind of a setting. Um, there's also been some interesting research done recently that has looked at whether or not um, you can discern differences in proficiency in surgeons or in other healthcare practitioners simply by using EEG to monitor their brain activity while they perform basic tasks that they would otherwise do to pass, for example, skills exams. Um, and some of the early research suggests that monitoring their cognitive performance and seeing how complex a task is for their brain may tell us and be able to differentiate the expert from the novice. Um, it might be a more discerning way to be able to tell the difference between which kind of surgeon you ultimately want to pass and certify and which kind of surgeon you ultimately want to have do the surgery for you. Um, so, you know, there, there's great promise to be able to give us insights about people's performance, their motor performance, cognitive decline they may be suffering over time. Um, and that's just on the side of the practitioners. If you think about monitoring the patients, there's a tremendous amount you can do um, both more efficiently, perhaps, and also much more affordably as the technology becomes more ubiquitous, becomes more portable, um, and can be provided in settings that are non-traditional. So if the average patient, for example, in their own home could be monitoring their brain activity before they go into epileptic shock, or they could measure their brain activity before going into insulin shock, it could be very powerful technology to enable them to take charge of their own health as well. Hmm. So what do you think are some of the risks that come along with with this kind of technology from a I suppose if, if we think about sort of civil liberties and, and those sorts of things could you see any elements of risk there or some some red flags I do I think that this is really promising technology but it's quite new and given how new it is and given how much people identify their sense of self with their brain and with their minds um, I think it's different than other kinds of technology. We've been using wearable and trackable devices now for a while. People have become comfortable with them. But um, it's a much more sensitive thing to monitor a person's brain activity or to be able to decode what people experience as their thought or their sense of self uh, than monitoring something like their heart rate or the number of steps that they've taken per day or their sleep activity. Um, and because it's so new and because it's such a sensitive area to be monitoring, we haven't yet established what societal norms will be with respect to uh, an expectation of any kind of mental privacy or freedom of thought or liberty um, in cognition or in the mind. Um, as a result, I think that the technology already is far ahead of where protections for individuals might be. And trying to find a balance between integrating what can be incredibly promising technology while protecting individuals against the potential for misuse of this technology and the chilling effect that it could have on people's experience of 
self or willingness to engage in the kinds of free thoughts that really define what it means to be human, I think are at risk. Um, the result is, in order, I think, for this technology to become accepted, we have to come to define what are appropriate uses and what are misuses of the technology and to empower people with rights to cognitive liberty that might enable them to say that's an inappropriate use of this information or you can only monitor my fatigue but you can't then gather my brainwave data to also probe and to learn other things about me that may be more sensitive. Um, if they don't have those rights, uh, if they don't have the ability to have some sort of counterbalance to um, the coming prevalence of the technology, uh, I think people are much more likely to reject it, be unwilling to use it. Um, and that's a danger with any new technology is that people reject it because of fear of its misuse. The best thing we can do is to give people safeguards against that misuse to enable them to reap the benefits while minimizing the risk to themselves. Now, that's interesting you talk about that because the technology is, as is so often the case, kind of outpacing the legislators and the, and the government to a certain extent here. Uh, that then leaves the the opportunity and the temptation for business to kind of harness the technology ahead of the legislative process to some extent. What would be your advice to business leaders who are looking at this, seeing opportunity, but also wanting to do the right thing? I think that for companies, um, given the uh, given the reasons why it would be beneficial for them to use it they can set the standards. They don't have to wait for legislatures to do so. Um, they'll also quickly find that uh, if, as has been the case in a few instances in which this technology has been adopted, if the result is a decrease in morale, a decrease in um, employee uh, enthusiasm and trust of their employers, uh, the things that they're trying to do to increase productivity, to decrease the cost of accidents, um, will not be achieved. You need employee buy-in in order to ultimately uh, reap the benefits of increased productivity, of increased safety in the workplace. And so the right answer, I think, for corporations is to be extraordinarily transparent about um, their intended use and what they plan to do with the data to give employees more than just an opt-in, a consent, because of the imbalance in the relationship, which makes consent alone insufficient, and to self-govern, to define clearly with their employees what the scope of the monitoring will be, to give access to the employees to the data that's being collected, to give employees the opportunity to correct mistakes in that information, and to be part of the process of figuring out how best to use the technology in the workplace. I think if it's a partnership with employees, if it's transparent with employees, and if it is done with the buy-in of employees, um, it'll be possible to reap the benefits for the employer and employee to create um, an environment in which both parties are enthusiastic about the adoption of the technology, and at the very least don't, fare, don't fear its misuse against employees, against customers, um, against uh, individuals who may have an imbalance vis-a-vis -vis the corporations in terms of power. Hmm. A, a lot of workplaces have health and well-being programs uh, already established. How might these be impacted, do you think, by the sorts of technology that we're talking about? Already in a lot of those health and well-being programs, employers are offering things like Fitbits or other fitness trackers to employees to try to encourage them to take um, to take 
uh, their health quite seriously and to be empowered with the knowledge about their fitness levels. Um, I think there's a risk with a lot of those that um, employees might be stigmatized as lazy or might be stigmatized as um, expensive for a health plan because of inactivity or because of what that kind of data might reveal. And um, some companies are starting to recognize that really to have total health and total wellness, you need brain wellness as well. That means both mental health, but also the ability to improve attention and focus and meditation, which a lot of these consumer-based brain devices can enable. I think in order to enhance brain wellness and mindfulness and mental, mental well-being, again, it's important that these be transparent uses of the technology. If companies start to give uh, individual employees, for example, EEG sets to be able to use for practice of meditation and attention and focus, but then they use that same information to track their uh, cognitive performance over the day or their attention or focus in the workplace without being transparent with employees about what the purpose and the use of that technology is, it's likely to undermine confidence, undermine trust, um, lead to a back lead to a rejection of those types of technologies in the workplace, which can ultimately undermine the goals of the employer. Mm. Now, you worked on the Presidential Commission for the Study of Bioethical Issues. What were the, the key learnings that you took from that? Particularly, and I'm particularly interested in the business context. Well, first I'll say there's a lot that I learned from that experience. It was an extraordinary opportunity to engage um, both in the United States but also internationally with different um, different sectors that are considering the ethical implications of advancing technology. Um, it was clear from my work during that time that businesses were quite interested in the ethical implications and applications of technologies, but often we're looking for pragmatic ways to be able to integrate ethics. I think for many people, ethics is oftentimes a checkbox rather than a practical set of tools to be integrated into a workplace with pragmatic advice about how to proceed. Um, And uh, what I think I learned most is that practical ethics can help guide people, that aspirational ethics can be much more difficult to help guide corporations. And so understanding both the practical implications and applications of ethics, but drilling down to specific advice as to how that should guide a corporation, what people can do on an individual basis, what people can do at the corporate level to create an ethical culture, but also to be ethical in their conduct with respect to their employees, with respect to their customers, with respect to the society in which they operate, um, is essential. It's important. It's a way to take ethics and make it applicable to everyday life. So it's not just about the principles, it's about the practice too. That's right. Mm. Australia's a big country. Have you seen any technologies that could help address the tyranny of distance? Um, Perhaps in the health sector, does anything stand out from that point of view? Not so much on the brain side of things, um, as so much as I think artificial intelligence is starting to really uh, change the health landscape. Um, For example, Uh, If we can make technology far more portable and accessible, if rather than requiring a specialist radiologist to read a radiological scan, you could have artificial intelligence that could read a radiological scan. No matter where you live, you can have access to great health care. If you can go into a pharmacy and use a kiosk that has artificial intelligence, 
that can quickly take a blood sample and analyze um, a condition or take a pathological sample and analyze it rather than requiring the top specialist in the country to analyze it for you. Um, it democratizes healthcare. It enables people, no matter where they are, to have access to some of the best healthcare that there is. So I think um, technology has uh, already shown us that it can democratize healthcare, that it can change access to healthcare. You might soon be able to take a mobile device and cough into it, and the sound of your cough could be analyzed to uh, give you precise care and to give you a much more precise diagnosis than having to go into a doctor's office to do the same. So I think technology offers us great promise. The question is how we're going to make it accessible to people and how we're going to distribute it uh, and how we're going to ensure that you know the information is used for good and minimize the harms that can come from misuse of that kind of information. That was Professor Nita Farahani. Having spoken with the professor, we wanted to learn more about how the health sector is harnessing technology, because it seems that as fast as we uncover more answers to human health issues, we're also raising more questions and ethical dilemmas. So we spoke with Minter Ellison partner Jonathan Kelp, who advises the health and life sciences industry on the regulatory landscape for medicines and medical devices. He told us more about the opportunities and challenges for the health industry. First of all, we asked him for some examples of where technology is already transforming medicine and healthcare. Yes, it's certainly clear that technology is playing an ever-increasing role in medicine and in the health sector as a whole. And that's both in terms of technology used by patients themselves and technology that's used in the delivery of healthcare services by healthcare practitioners. And what's really interesting is that the demand and appetite for improvements in that technology is not only driven by the healthcare practitioners, but also increasingly by consumers themselves. So a great example of this is the proliferation of wearable tracking devices and mobile health apps that use those devices or that we have on our smartphones. And what is happening is that consumers are approaching doctors themselves with data from their own devices and asking the medical practitioner to use that data or to give them advice based around that data that they've collected. And so the ease with which patients can self-monitor has already come a long way in the last five or ten years, even before we turn to the really sophisticated examples in terms of, for example, self-monitoring electrical activity in the brain. Then, at the other end of the spectrum from personal tracking devices, we have technology like 3D printing technology that's being deployed in the healthcare space. So in Victoria, for example, the Murdoch Children's Research Institute is using a 3D bioprinter um, to engineer kidney tissue and model kidney disease. And that technology will allow their research teams to bioprint stem cells into a more accurate model of a human kidney. But the end game, which is even more exciting, is that this could ultimately lead to bioprinting a kidney that's large enough and functional enough to be transplanted into a patient. It's mind-blowing stuff, isn't it? it? It is. It really is. Nita spoke about technology already being far ahead of where protections for individuals might be and 
about trying to strike a balance between integrating what can be incredibly promising technology while at the same time protecting individuals against the potential for misuse of the technology. What steps should organisations take when they're looking to introduce these technologies? Yes, this is certainly an interesting issue because we know from past experience that legislation and regulation will always lag behind the technology, often dramatically so. And this applies no less to healthcare than in any other industry or sector, such as the illegal downloading of pirated movies. I think Nita's recommendation of business in this space being transparent and voluntarily transparent is important. That's particularly the case because of the very direct personal nature of the interaction between the technology and the consumer or patient. Now, that's based on both the nature of the data being collected, which is often very private and personally sensitive, and often the fact that the technology itself may be attached to or even implanted in the body. Ultimately, it comes down to trust. And we've all seen the public examples of data breaches, privacy breaches, and the serious reputational consequences that flow from a lack of trust. Perhaps most dramatically, um, we've seen the very high number of people, more than two and a half million, who opted out of the federal government's My Health Record system. It also makes sense for organisations to have at least one eye on the future. It's critical that they are aware of regulatory developments in other countries so that they can see the direction in which regulation in Australia may head. We're well aware that in many areas of healthcare regulation, in particular, say, medicines and medical devices, the regulator in Australia takes its lead from what's happening in um, Europe, the United Kingdom and other countries. Perhaps more importantly, is also to be aware of what criticisms, risks or concerns are being raised by consumers. One of the real benefits of modern technology is that healthcare providers and organisations playing in this space can, if they want to, through social media, access a vast array of direct feedback from patients and consumers. The sort of feedback that five or ten years ago would take many months and a significant investment of money through setting up focus groups to be able to obtain. Let's look at this from a government perspective too. Um, what should governments be doing to prepare for these technologies? I think a really critical aspect of this is for governments to be um, to be aware of what's happening in the health sector um, because of, as I mentioned previously, the very personal interaction between the technology and the patient. It's really important to, um, for governments to ensure that appropriate protections are being put in place, whether that's around data protection or privacy, but also um, looking at the actual devices themselves and ensuring that there's an appropriate regulatory framework for dealing with, for example, um, a tracking device or, a, or an app that's used on a smartphone, whether that's regulated as a medical device or in some other way. And if we look around the rest of the world and look overseas, is there anywhere that Australia might look to for inspiration? Is there anybody who's doing a good job at amending legislation already to accommodate for the rapid advances that we're seeing in medical technologies? Given just how critical it is to ensure that um, individuals' data is protected and their privacy is looked after, um, one of the things that we 
could turn to um, in terms of overseas examples is the establishment of something like a health sector data guardian, as has recently been set up in the UK. And the importance of someone taking that sort of oversight role is to really look after patients in the health sector and ensure that their data, that they're um, contributing, whether voluntarily that they're offering up to healthcare providers or being asked to contribute to assist in how they might be treated for a particular condition is being appropriately protected. And this is something that could be done through drawing together um, existing expertise in the regulatory space. Um, we already have a privacy commissioner. We already have um, particular roles that are directed to looking after information. But because of the very personal nature of this information and just how valuable it can be, um, it seems like there's, a, there's an opportunity for something specific to the health sector. Nita explained how technology can democratise healthcare, that it can actually change access to healthcare for individuals and the public. Uh, is Australia well poised to adopt new healthcare technologies from a legislative perspective? I think Australia is well placed because of the fact that we have such a strong R&D culture and particularly in the healthcare sector we have a strong base of medical research institutes who are all well placed um, to be undertaking uh, work in this space. And because it's inherent that the regulatory landscape will take time to catch up, I don't think that that's a constraint on Australia um, adopting new healthcare technologies. And I think it provides an opportunity for early adapters to have a real say in actually shaping what that regulatory landscape looks like while these technologies are being um, brought into play. So given everything that we've just discussed, reflecting forward and, and looking at where Australia is now, how optimistic should we be about Australia's regulatory environment and its level of preparedness for this new technology? I think that given, as Nita said, um, technology is having this effect of democratising healthcare and changing access to healthcare in a way that empowers consumers, I think that gives us cause for confidence that um, the regu regulatory landscape will um, evolve to facilitate these technologies being brought into play. And when you add the fact that developments in healthcare technology, if they're successful, can have a positive effect on the cost of providing healthcare services, which is ultimately um, a key concern for government, I think that that will create a real incentive for governments to on the one hand, react to consumer and patient concerns, and on the other hand, do everything they, they can to facilitate the introductions of these types of technologies. We'd like to thank our guests in this special report, our own Jonathan Kelp from Minter Ellison and Professor Nita Farahoney from Duke University, North Carolina. For more information about these issues and to read our show notes, visit MinterEllison.com. Thank you for listening to this introductory episode. We'll be back with more episodes in the coming months. So subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line on social media or via the contact page of our website. 
And if you've enjoyed listening to this, then please check out our other episode, exploring another issue that will shape the future of business. We speak with Rupert Younger from the Oxford University Centre for Corporate Reputation and Minter Ellison partner Geraldine Johns-Putra about how businesses can gain and retain trust among an increasingly jaded public. You can find that episode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again for listening and goodbye for now. <laughs>